Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a lengthy meeting in Moscow today between China's President Xi Jinping and Russia's President Putin, which was preceded with a little daylight between the two in their No Limits partnership, with China refusing to go along with Putin's vision of geopolitical conflict with the West while agreeing on the need for the formation of a multipolar world order. Joining us to discuss the possibility that China will make a peace deal and engage with Ukraine's President Zelensky is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, and we'll discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft, Biden's Looming Trap in Ukraine. Three key factors show why the administration needs to press the accelerator pedal on negotiations with Russia now. Then, since today was the day Donald Trump said he would be arrested, we will speak with Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed novels, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump in the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, the Corruption, Impunity, and Impeachment of Donald Trump. He is a contributor to CNN, and we will discuss Trump's call over the weekend to his MAGA followers to protest, 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 and look into the extent that Trump derives sadistic pleasure from violence and other people's pain, and would be happy to see America destroyed in order to save himself. Then finally, with the nation's second biggest school district on strike today, as strikes and union organizing at Starbucks, Trader Joe's and Amazon are getting national attention, we'll assess what it will take to reinvigorate the lethargic U.S. labor movement and speak with Jane McAlevey, an organizer, author and scholar. She is currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center, part of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations, and is the author of A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. And her latest book, Just Out, co-authored with Abby Lawler, is Rules to Win By, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. We will discuss her recent article, At the Nation, Getting a Contract, Negotiating and Winning Against the Odds. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Biden's Looming Trap in Ukraine. Three key factors show why the administration needs to press the accelerator pedal on negotiations with Russia now. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Bibi. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, George. And uh, today, of course, is the second day of Chinese President Xi Jinping's summit meeting with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. This was a day of negotiation, and it looks like there's some daylight between the Chinese and the Russians. What do you think? Uh, daylight as regards uh, a peace settlement in Ukraine? Is that what you're referring to? I think to? so. I mean, I'm basing this on the fact that on a couple of days ago, Putin published an article in Chinese state media in which he argued that Russia and China are building a partnership for a multipolar world order in the face of collective West's domination with the U.S., pursuing aggressive policies of dual containment against China and Russia. But then she offered a much less aggressive interpretation of, of the situation in Russian state media's Russiskaya Gazeta, in which she noted that Russia and China are generally pursuing a multipolar world order, but not specifically against an adversarial West. Instead, she focused heavily on presenting China as a viable third-party mediator particularly in terms of the war in Ukraine. So that's what I mean by daylight. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, I'm not sure that there's a lot of daylight on, on uh, peace in Ukraine. I think uh, the 12-point so-called peace plan that the Chinese came out with uh, not long ago is essentially what uh, the Chinese presented to the Russians, and the Russians have largely embraced it. Uh, Putin said, yeah, you know, I think uh, there's very much room for the Chinese to uh, to be involved in attempting to bring about a peace settlement. There's a lot uh, to the Chinese uh, 12-point plan that Russia believes uh, is workable um, and essentially said, sure, you know, let's, let's move forward here. Uh, the problem is not Russia. The problem is that the West and Kiev are not ready to talk seriously, but Russia is. So um, the one point where I think there's some tension between Russia and China is on the point of uh, territory in Ukraine. I think um, the the idea that uh, some outside power can invade uh, another and take territory and, and annex it as its own causes China concerns for its own security. Um, it's, a, it's a precedent that the Chinese are not comfortable with. Uh, and they, of course, have in mind Taiwan, which they believe is you know, Chinese territory. Um, so uh, that's an area where the Chinese have some real sensitivities. Obviously, the Russians feel like you know, the, the territory that they have annexed is Russian uh, and is not going to change. So that is a point of friction, but I'm not sure it's a, a deal breaker from either the Chinese or the Russian point of view. And uh, I, I think increasingly uh, we're going to see a situation where the Chinese are attempting to position themselves as a peacemaker, 
uh, in Ukraine, uh, just as they did between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think the burden is going to be on the West and Ukraine to deal with that um, in, in some way that doesn't make it appear that the United States is playing spoiler or that the Ukrainians are, are being rejectionists and all of this. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's not a particularly easy situation to deal with from the point of view of the West. Well, that would mean then that we know that the Chinese prime minister is in Kiev at the moment, but presumably she would not visit Kiev. That might be asking too much. But apparently they're arranging a video conference, she and Zelensky. We know that Ukraine's foreign minister has been in discussion with China's foreign minister. So a peace deal has to include clearly one that's hatched purely in in Moscow with Putin. It's not going to fly, right? He has to talk to the Ukrainians, does he not? Oh, absolutely correct. And what's interesting about this is that the United States almost you know, pre-rejected uh, any Chinese re- involvement in a settlement in Ukraine. Uh, White House spokesman John Kirby said, you know, the United States will not support any kind of a, a ceasefire uh, in Ukraine. And uh, U.S. officials, including President Biden, have uh, poured a lot of cold water on any Chinese involvement, claiming that, that China is not impartial, that it tilts toward Russia, and therefore has no legitimate role to play in, in any kind of a settlement. The, uh, the Ukrainians have not reacted in that way at all. Uh, after China uh, put out its 12-point plan, the Ukrainians did not reject it. In fact, Zelensky said, you know, there are elements of this that we think are worth discussing. And uh, he said that he was very much interested in talking with uh, the Chinese leader. And uh, that looks like it's going to happen. So uh, what's interesting to me is that for, for you know, quite some time, the United States has said that it's up to Kiev to decide if and when to pursue a settlement. Um, but, uh, when it comes to the Chinese proposal, that's not how we've handled it. We've rejected it. The uh, Ukrainians have not, uh, at this point. Now we'll have to see what actually transpires in a conversation between Zelensky and Xi, but, uh, I would be surprised if the Ukrainians reject Chinese involvement altogether. Um, they are probably going to at least play along nominally on this. Um, and, and that makes for a very interesting dynamic. Well, it could make us look like spoilers, right? If we're not careful, it could. That's right. So Zelensky, though, must be feeling the burden of the casualties that the Ukraine has had throughout this war. And particularly now in this very, very intense battle over Bakhmut. The Ukrainian casualties are classified. They're a black hole, but I imagine they're substantial given the population ratio between Ukraine and Russia, what Russia has over three times more of the population. So how much of a factor is that weighing, do you think, on Zelensky? Well, I think it's got to be a factor in his thinking. Um, this has become a very artillery-heavy war. Um, the, the Russians are, are firing enormous volumes of, uh, of artillery at the Ukrainians, um, and 
you know, we don't know exactly how many casualties Ukraine has suffered in all of this, but it's got to be significant. Now, the Russians are certainly losing a lot of men as well. Um, but that's a trade-off that I think the Russians are, are willing to, to uh, have. They think they have a lot more reserve capacity than the Ukrainians do, even with Western support. So the Russians like their chances in a war of attrition. And right now, I'm not sure we have a good solution to this problem. Uh, the United States and its European allies cannot supply Ukraine with the volumes of artillery ammunition that they need to deal with what the Russians are doing. We just don't have the capacity right now in our manufacturing to generate those volumes. Uh, and the other big problem that the Ukrainians have is manpower. They have a smaller base than the Russians do. Um, certainly they have better morale and more motivation, but that only gets you so far when you're talking about the numbers that uh, are being lost in this war. Uh, and the United States and NATO can't really provide uh, Ukraine with men uh, unless we are willing to risk a direct war with Russia on this. And so far we haven't been. Well, that is obviously a dangerous step, and there's no indication that anybody's prepared to make that step. So in terms of what Putin and Xi must be discussing, first of all, I guess in retrospect, it would have been wiser for the West and Biden and NATO to have framed this war as a war over sovereignty as opposed to a war for democracy against autocracy, because that is what the Chinese position is, as you pointed out. So how could they negotiate that, Putin and Xi? In other words, if Xi is serious about territorial integrity, how much of Ukraine does Putin have to give up? <laughs> well, that's the big question. I'm not sure anybody has a good answer to that. And frankly, I don't think this war is going to end in some sort of compromise over territory, uh, wherein the Ukrainians recognize portions of their country is now part of Russia. I think that's just too much for the Ukrainians to swallow. And uh, frankly, I don't think the West would support something like that either. I think probably the most you can hope for, uh, for uh, the foreseeable future is an agreement to disagree on territory, uh, much like what has happened in Cyprus, for example. Um, or what happened uh, with the Soviet Union, uh, where the United States never recognized the incorporation of the Baltic states into the Soviet Union. Um, all U.S. maps during the Cold War had notation at the bottom saying that the U.S. government does not recognize the incorporation of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia into the Soviet Union. So my guess is that uh, we're not going to end this war in some sort of agreement on where the border is drawn between Ukraine and Russia. But we can, I think, compromise on other things that could facilitate uh, an end to the fighting that is durable over time. And I think that's what we're going to have to focus on. Well, that's going to be a tough nut, though, isn't it, uh, George? Because you've, as you pointed out, Russia's got a much bigger industrial base and they can manufacture ammunition at a high, much greater rate 
than the West and they're running out of ammunition, the Ukrainians apparently, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in the pipeline and NATO and the US have been slow in delivering stuff. So what kind of a guarantees for Ukraine security could there be? They would have to say in this deal that they're not going to be part of NATO, right? That would be a bottom line, right? Well, that's right. I think the, the Russians will not agree to end the fighting if unless uh, the United States and NATO agree that Ukraine is not going to be part of the NATO alliance. I think that's one uh, bottom line requirement for the Russians that's been consistent over many, many years. Um, but uh, Ukraine won't agree to end this war uh, unless they have some reasonable assurances that they're not going to be left vulnerable to repeat Russian invasions. Um, and that's where some other creative arrangement is going to have to be explored. Now, China's involvement as a peacemaker in this war uh, is a very interesting development in that regard, because um, if China were, for example, to say that it would agree to be one of the guarantors of Ukrainian security going forward, that might be a, a very interesting factor that could be a factor reassuring the Ukrainians that the, the Chinese might be able to restrain Russia. Now, the Chinese have considerable leverage over Russia right now. Russia has, you know, by alienated the West, really narrowed its uh, geostrategic options. It's heavily dependent on China right now, economically and politically. Um, and so the Chinese do have some capacity to, to act as a restrainer uh, on Russia in the context of, of a, a peace deal. But meanwhile, Ukraine would have to still build up its military readiness, wouldn't it? No question. Yes, that's right. That would have to be a part of all of this. The question is, could they do it as a neutral state, not aligned with NATO? Uh, and that's what we're going to have to be be thinking hard about. Right, but they've already had to adapt to NATO weapons, and their Soviet weapons are all out of date, and they've run through their artillery tubes and all the ammunition. So they're a de facto NATO state in terms of their military procurement, aren't they? Well, in that regard, you're correct, but there are many countries in this world that... Uh, depend on American manufactured and supplied military equipment and training uh, that are not close to being military allies with the, the United States or part of the NATO alliance. So it would not be a unique situation for the Ukrainians to have uh, a U.S. Uh, supplied military, but, but not have any kind of uh, alliance commitment with the United States. So you talk about a Chinese creative solution here, and that sort of <laughs> that's a pretty vague term, right? Uh, but it does obviously require creativity. Are you thinking about maybe peacekeepers? I, uh, at this point, rather doubt that the Chinese would be willing to commit uh, peacekeepers, um, and certainly the Russians would object strenuously to, to any uh, U.S. or NATO peacekeepers. Um, but I think peacekeepers might, in fact, play a role in all of this. They would have, excuse me, there would have to be uh, U.N.-sponsored peacekeepers, I think, for uh, the sides to uh, agree to something like that. But 
Um, that's something that down the road could be a part of a, a settlement, yes. So just in the last couple of minutes then, George Beebe, what's going on at the White House, given that they're being kind of churlish about this? They had to notice that China made a deal between the bitter enemy Saudi Arabia and Iran to resume diplomatic relations. And we're kind of left holding the bag in the Middle East. All we have is the Abram Accords, which look kind of irrelevant. So isn't this a case of the United States being too reliant on the military power and its diplomatic toolbox is pretty empty? Well, I think that's right. Um, What happened over the past 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall is the United States grew accustomed to a unipolar world where the United States had no peers. And, you know, its military and economic strength were so vastly greater than any other country that we really felt that we didn't have to engage in normal diplomatic give and take and trying to reconcile uh, interests with other countries that were at odds with our own preferences. We were uh, in a situation where we could simply tell other people, you know, this is the way it's going to be or else. Um, and the or else was uh, sometimes military force, sometimes uh, coercive economic sanctions or other kinds of pressure. Uh, but what has happened is uh, the world has changed and we now have uh, a, a peer rival in China, a country that uh, has an economy that is very close in size to our own, has a military that is growing much more formidable, uh, much more capable. Um, and uh, China has started to step out on the world diplomatic stage uh, in ways that it, it has never done in the past. You know, China you know, helping to, to broker this deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia far outside of, of China's, uh, you know, near, near neighbors. Uh, this is a, a new thing. And you know, China is now stepping up on Ukraine and saying, we have an interest in uh, bringing this war to a peaceful end. We are not indifferent to what's happening here. We are a player. This is a new development for the United States. Uh, It's not something we've really had to deal with before. And I think it is putting pressure on the White House to up our diplomatic game, uh, to bring our military and economic influence in the world, which are still substantial, together with sound strategic thinking and diplomacy in ways that we haven't had to. This is a different world, and we're going to have to deal with it in new ways. So I think the White House needs to do some some deep thinking about how we're going to handle this. Well, George Beebe, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's a, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Biden's Looming Trap in Ukraine. Three key factors show why the administration needs to press the accelerator pedal on negotiations with Russia now. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the fact that today was the day that Donald Trump said he would be arrested and 
We will discuss Trump's call over the weekend to his MAGA followers to protest, protest, protest. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-author with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. And he's a contributor to CNN. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael D'Antonio. Hi. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us in, on this Tuesday, the day that Donald Trump said he would be arrested. It hasn't happened yet. In fact, we're learning that the Manhattan Grand Jury will convene on Wednesday, tomorrow. So what do you think is, will happen in terms of if and when an indictment is issued? Well, we now know that uh, Mr. Trump is not a perfect prophet. So that that's an interesting development. Um, and I also really have questions about whether there'll be any protest uh, of significance. I've seen that authorities are uh, using barriers and preparing manpower for the possibility that there'll be something massive outside the prosecutor's offices, but I don't notice that people are stirred up, and it, it it doesn't seem like this is resonating, especially with people who are less committed to the cause of Trumpism. So I think it's quite possible that the indictment will be announced, the arrest of Donald Trump and the booking process will be delayed, and they may find a way to bring him in um, that will reduce the prospect of something terrible happening. Now, I think he wants something terrible to happen, um, so denying him this, I think, will be very frustrating for him, but good for the country. Well, he's tried to control the narrative, obviously saying he'd be arrested today, but he did on over the weekend on Truth Social post a call to arms, if you will, protest, 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 and, of course, he's getting a lot of help from these MAGA Republicans in the House, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, House Oversight Chairman James Comer, and House Administrative Chairman Brian Steele. They're all attacking the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, trying to haul him in to a kangaroo court, which, of course, won't happen. But my understanding, Michael, is that uh, there have already been death threats against Alvin Bragg. Is that your understanding? Yes, it is. And uh, can anybody be surprised? I mean, Donald Trump incited violence uh, in his 2016 rallies. There have been numerous uh, violent incidents where people have claimed that Trump was one of their motivating factors. 
uh, and incidents that were, in, you know, stopped. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the night that I was at CNN, and there were devices or apparent devices uh, opened in the mailroom, and the building had to be evacuated. Now, they were not effective pipe bombs, so there was nothing ultimately uh, to fear from them, but we all were afraid. Uh, and that person drove around in a van that was uh, essentially a Trump mobile, all decorated with quotes from him and uh, also terrible statements about people in the media. So if you say the news media is the enemy or protest, 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 and you're Donald Trump, I think people understand that in a way that is different from somebody, a normal political leader, maybe saying, I hope people do protest or we're going to change this policy by protesting in the streets. Uh, Donald Trump is known as somebody who calls on his followers to be more extreme. Uh, and there is an element in his support that I think is larger than in other groups. And uh, it's more people committed to these extreme expressions of support for him and uh, anger, rage at others. So, Michael, you have profiled Trump and written the truth about Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and, his, and the Pursuit of Success, and more recently, High Crimes, the Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. So what's your take on the extent to which he is sadistic? It seems that he gets a lot of pleasure out of trying to sound and act like a mob boss and that seems to be almost his you know <laughs> ambition in life to be a mob boss but we've learned now from former secretary of defense Esper and also from the first chief of staff general kelly in kelly's case trump asked kelly to have the marines at the border shoot mexicans and Kelly had to explain to him that that's not something you can ask young American Marines to do. And then we know from Esper Tawley, he called on the Esper to get the National Guard to shoot protesters in the legs. There's also, I think, something that hasn't been investigated enough, and that is on the January the 6th, when Trump essentially put a target on his vice president's back and they erected a gallows at the Capitol, and as they stormed the Capitol, they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. It's not inconceivable that Trump actually would have been perfectly happy if Mike Pence had been hanged, uh, because then he could put in a crony, a flunky, to do what Mike Pence had refused to do in stopping the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Um, what's your take on this? Well, it's so interesting that you say that uh, with Pence, he, Trump might have tried to install a crony because Pence put such a great effort into being <laughs> this uh, terrible oleaginous, servile person. And even that uh, commitment 
wasn't enough to win Trump's approval uh, for how Pence wanted to handle his constitutional duty. And to the first point, I think Trump was thrilled by the violence that he saw. I, I think he's always wanted a big mob to act on his behalf, and I think he's always understood, as most, if not all, public figures into it, that in every crowd is a potential mob, and in every mob is the potential for violence. So if you're going to toy with their anger, uh, you have an obligation, and, and this is an obligation politicians generally understand, to pull back before you incite a crowd to something terrible. And most don't even get close to the line. And and they understand that this is how you preserve civil society. But Trump doesn't observe those boundaries, and just as he doesn't observe other boundaries. And early in my work on him, he talked to me about, first of all, how he loves violence and loves to fight. And he said all kinds of fights, even physical. Now, hearing from a man who was then in his 60s that he liked physical fights was ridiculous. Um, in fact, I don't think he's shown physical courage at any point in his life. You have to remember that he's the one who sought and got all the deferments so he could avoid military service during the Vietnam War. So he is sadistic when it comes to seeing those whom he hates, abused and violated. Um, but he's also a coward and and has never acted on this himself. Uh, even when he's seemed to have justification for it, uh, he does not act. Instead, he hires others. Um, you know, we all remember when uh, the reporter Ramos was pushed out of a press conference by one of Trump's guards, who is somebody I know, and he's an absolute thug, and was hired because he was a former police uh, detective, happy to carry a gun. He was a big guy, um, later given a, a substantial position in the administration for which he had no qualifications. So, as you say, um, he has this propensity, uh, at least for violence, to be committed on his behalf. He is very much like a mob boss. Uh, we know that he spent a great deal of time around mobsters in his life. Uh, they were the ones responsible for supplying concrete uh, in enormous amounts for Trump Tower, which was the first all-concrete building of its sort built in America. And he dealt with them and talked about how one has to compromise. And in Roy Cohn, he had a lawyer who was renowned as the mob lawyer uh, in New York in the 1970s and 80s. So this mentality is his mentality. Uh, the behavior is similar. You know, mob bosses don't bump anybody off themselves. They just give the orders. 
So on January the 6th, when they kept trying to get Trump to stop the insurrection and uh, the top anchors at Fox were frantically emailing and texting Mark Meadows, clutching their pearls and saying this is a bad look for us and all this stuff as though they were hand in glove with the administration, which they clearly were. Meanwhile, Trump is watching TV. So we haven't had too many first-hand accounts, but I'm assuming that he was actually enjoying seeing the, the windows of the Capitol beaten and the police being beaten up. What do you think? If he had been bothered by it, he would have uh, called on the rioters to stop right away. But he didn't. Uh, approximately two hours passed. Um, the infamous, I think the number is 147 minutes or something like that. And during that time, he had every opportunity, minute by minute, to do something uh, to potentially save lives uh, and certainly uh, stop the assault and injury of all these police officers whom he supposedly favors over almost all others. You know, this is a person who repeated over and over again, we love law enforcement. And, you know, to see a blend of his claim to love them and his uh, interest in violence, all you have to do is think about the address he gave to police in Suffolk County, New York, where he advised them not to treat their the people they uh, took into custody so well. He didn't like seeing video of officers trying to help people get into the police car while handcuffed from getting hurt. And he said, don't treat them so nicely. You, you, it's okay if they get hurt. Um, it's it's a very strange uh, combination of attitudes of you know identifying with the police, uh, encouraging them to treat people terribly, but also refusing to act when the police were being engaged in a medieval battle. Uh, because he thought that the attackers were his folks, and they were his folks. So how much did his father psychologically damage Trump? Because I understand that his father kept telling his son, Donald, you've got to be a killer, son, you've got to be a killer. What kind of psychological damage? I'm not making excuses for Trump, but apparently Fred Trump was a pretty nasty guy. Well, he was a pretty nasty guy, and he was nasty to everyone. Uh, his family, those he uh, encountered in business, uh, he was even one of those who always, like his son, violated the rules. Uh, so he's a person who was kicked out of a program for public housing in New York State because he was cheating the program. And earlier than that, he was brought before Congress because President Eisenhower had noticed a number of developers were abusing a program for housing veterans and other middle-class people. And again, 
uh, he was demonstrating that he had no regard for anyone if they got in the way of his ambition. So uh, earlier in Donald's life, I can't say that he was subject to violence um, at the hands of his father. However, his father did send him away to a military school when he was 13 years old, and he told me all about how the so-called officers, uh, these were just men who came back from World War II and were installed with ranks at the military school, would beat up the guys, beat up the children. You know, so a 13-year-old is certainly a child. And uh, Trump told me that he thought that was great, that, that they should smack the kids around, and that one of the problems in today's society is that we're so gentle with children. Um, so I have no doubt that he um, was abused at that school, that uh, 13 is not too late to affect your formation uh, psychologically and morally. And uh, that combined with other factors in his upbringing, I think, helped assure that we got this deranged person as president. Um, but, you know, I'm a nature and nurture person. So I think that given uh, Fred Trump's apparent problems and uh depravity. I, I think that maybe there's a history of this that's in the family uh, that could be genetic of people who are sociopathic. And um, it's disturbing to think about, but, you know, sociopaths are among us. And some of them uh, demonstrate that it's a, it's a means to success in certain arenas, that among those who make a huge amount of money and uh, gain a huge amount of power that they use for themselves, there's a great deal of sociopathy. Right. Just look at Wall Street. <laughs> but just, <laughs> right, right. Just, just in closing there, Michael, just to sum up on Trump, saying today would be the day that he would be arrested. You think it'll happen in a week? And my understanding is that already they're calling on on convoys of cars to sort of create a kind of moat around Mar-a-Lago to prevent anybody getting in. And, of course, he's protected by the Secret Service. So I understand the Secret Service are negotiating with the NYPD. They would negotiate with them. And it's interesting to note, or significant, I think, that... President Biden has been working to uh, take the MAGA out of the civil Secret Service because by the end of Trump's term, there were quite a few ultra-loyalists uh, and uh, people who uh, believed what Trump was saying about the election. So uh, I think that it's possible now to negotiate well with the Secret Service, and um, there is a spot at Mar-a-Lago for helicopters. So 
how convenient would it be for there to be a helicopter sent to remove this man so that this um, motorcade would not be effective? Um, that's a almost a fantastical thing to imagine, something out of a film. Um, and perhaps the local authorities in uh, Palm Beach have their own ways of blocking this kind of effort. You know, you, you have to think that they could establish roadblocks. You can't get onto the island proper without going over a bridge. So there are probably many means uh, that can be used. But it will be a terrible day in America and a terrible day in history, no matter what happens. And very challenging to people who appreciate his comeuppance, uh, because I think we have no reason to be happy about this. And I think any gloating by people who have uh, been horrified by him should be withheld. You know, we who are glad to see this person uh, held responsible at last after a lifetime of awful abuses of our society uh, owe it to ourselves to restrain our commentary so that we don't become uh, those who incite. You know, there's no reason to contribute to the divisiveness, especially on that day. Um, but I think we'll all be glued to our televisions. Well, Marco D'Antonio, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump, and he's a contributor to CNN. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what it will take to reinvigorate the lethargic U.S. labor movement. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jane McAlevey, who is an organizer, author, and scholar. She is currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center, part of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations, and is the author of A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. And the latest book, Just Out, co-authored with Abby Lawler, is Rules to Win By, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. And she has a recent article at The Nation, Getting a Contract, Negotiating and Winning Against the Odds. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jane McAlee. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Jane, here in Los Angeles, there is a three-day strike by the local 99 of the Service Employees 
International Union, which represents 30,000 teachers, aides, special education assistants, bus drivers, custodians, cafeteria workers, and other support staff. And the United Teachers of Los Angeles, uh, representing 35,000 teachers, etc., they have joined, well, they won't cross the picket line, so there's a three-day strike underway. Uh, Representative uh, Adam Schiff had a press conference today with the UTLA president and said that the strikers were earning poverty wages. And this is in the context, of course, of hardly a day goes by without some news about Starbucks and Trader Joe's and Amazon, both in terms of strikes and union negotiations. So your book is well-timed, is it not? Because this is a, it seems to be a, an era, if you will, of union negotiating. It's um, it, it certainly it certainly feels well timed. I mean, the truth is, Oxford actually pushed very hard uh, to get it out faster, which was good. I mean, went through peer review quickly with some incredible peer review process. Really great, whoever they were. Um, and yeah, they did push because it is it is a moment, and I'm glad for that. Um, because the what what we said or what I've been saying is it it really is the first book when we were doing a literature review, both academic as well as sort of I cover the I do a literature review of, you know, getting to yes and all the kind of like business negotiations books that are out there, all of which I was forced to read as a young negotiator by my smart mentors and the Harvard types, you know, re- reading their stuff. So it, it became very clear after a couple of decades of leading negotiations, and I had great mentors. Let me be clear. I didn't invent anything I write about about negotiations. I mean, original case studies from my, my work and others. But um, there's a way to negotiate when you want to bring maximum power um, to the table. And that, you know, the idea that we are the idea that negotiations that people don't know how to do it. Um, that the that the tradition was sort of knocked out um, from the 1950s from McCarthyism, that the idea that you build robust, small democratic unions and you encourage every single worker to participate in the negotiations process. Yeah, I think it's a pretty urgent conversation. And it's such a mirror on the crisis of like workplace democracy and the crisis inside of it and the lack of um, ability for ordinary, everyday working class people to build power and set some control over their lives, their schedules, their their ability to, you know, these are education workers making $25,000 a year. They can't even buy clothing for their kids, let alone have a decent home over their heads, right? Like, what message is the school district sending by keeping its workers in poverty so that they can't even provide for their own children in the public schools the way that all kids should be served. You know what I mean? So I'm just going to stop there before we go on. But yeah, it's, it's well-timed and it's there's a whole generation. I mean, Sarah Nelson gave it a blurb, the flight attendant's leader. It's got some great supporters on it, endorsers on it. But, you know, she said something to the effect of, you know, just in time for the new generation about to take over. So it's it's a delight to share knowledge. So let's talk about the new generation in terms of the labor movement, which has been somewhat lethargic. What is the sense then that there's a there's some new blood and there's some fighting spirit? Well, there's a lot. Let's just start out with the strike that we're discussing. You mentioned already um, that the strike is technically, you know, by was declared by, um, you know, what what we should just call the essential workers, right? The first part of the essential workers in the in the public schools, which is local 99 bus drivers, custodians, educational assistants, etc. But then you have, which which itself is great, right? I mean, the message of this country at this point is no one's going to save you. So, you know, if we want to save ourselves, we need to get to it and build some real power and organization to do it. So 
it's just great that they are standing up for themselves. And then to have, this is new. I mean, it shouldn't be, but it is, to your point about lethargy, that was a kind comment. The fact that the teachers won't cross the picket lines, you know, is back to the 1940s when, when working class people had power in this country. We, we need this kind of behavior. So that's new. Um, and sad we have to celebrate it as such, but boy, a renewal of real solidarity is deeply overdue at a time of real polarization in American politics and fake populists and the Trump ilk um, and company and Boris Johnson, and we won't even leave the country. There's plenty of them here. Um, and then you've got, you know, Starbucks, you mentioned. It's over, we're over 300 stores right now. We've got Trader, you know, we have all these unusual sectors. We've got, you know, I was part of the 48,000 person strike at the University of California since I'm a researcher. So, you know, you've got all these students. Um, it's a different kind of campus movement because everyone's working and poor and tuition's too high um, and teaching assistants are abused. So, like, that's a whole nother sector of new workers who are just saying, academic workers, just saying, yeah, we, you know, the old saying, you can't eat prestige. I mean, that comes out of the Harvard strikes and the L strikes from way back, but that's like a new student worker movement because you can't even get to just be a student in this country anymore. Um, you know, we're busy bailing out banks and stuff. So um, there is an entire, there's an entire new set of energy. And what's frightening to me, um, there's a lot of excitement, but what's frightening is going back to your comment, the inability of the sort of legacy unions to adapt and embrace this moment in the ways that they should. They're sort of fits and starts. It's haphazard, a few are kind of embracing it. You know, SEIU is basically funding uh, Workers United, which is the Starbucks campaign, and that's often not quite well understood. Um, but there's not a lot of that happening out there. So we need way more of that. We've got a mismatch between great new energy, risk-taking, all the stuff we need, um, and not experience and not skill on the one side. And then we've got a lot of skill and experience and resources, financial kind of resources, and it, and still a risk aversion and still an unwillingness to just give up some control and share the power, share a little bit of shrinking power, you know, the working class has. So we just, we need, we just, we need to, we need to push it on here, folks, because the climate crisis has got a different kind of time clock on us, right? So the most recent strike that got, a lot of attention and got the attention of the White House was the rail strike uh, or the pending rail strike over the issue of sick days and the rail companies had basically cut the workforce down to the bone to the point where uh, rail workers couldn't have a sick day because they were needed as a result of uh, cost cutting by the rail companies and so the White House intervenes and basically does not doesn't appear to support the railway workers. And by the way, there was a whole bunch of railway worker unions. So, so this leads me to ask, why can't some of these unions consolidate? For example, the United States Postal Service, which is run by a Trump crony that they're trying to get rid of, it has like four or five different unions. So is that a problem with the American union worker that this, you know, they're sort of balkanized? Um, I wish we could say it was uh, American exceptionalism here, but sadly, um, it's not. So it's a problem of sort of the, the more established trade unions worldwide. Um, and I'm in full agreement with you um, that in an ideal world, and I think most people who understand how to build a more powerful trade union movement understand we need far more of the solidarity again that we're seeing in Los Angeles right now that we saw in Chicago in 2019, where the teachers and the 
and same, the support staff and the teachers also teamed up at the same time for the first time. So this is the second big time it's happening in a few years and in the second and third largest city once again. So hats off to these educators for being leaders. Um, uh, but the rail strike was totally outrageous. Um, yes, those unions should all be, you know, functioning much more tightly. This this outrageous behavior by the bipartisan um, people, you know, I mean, this was in, this was in the control of Democrats. It's just let's just remind ourselves of who appointed the the board, right? Who appoints the actual board that said um, they could not go on strike? That was Joe Biden. Um, and so, yes, we have a um, uh, what is his name? I'm spacing it. Didn't the head of the postal? Anyway, we, he's a bad guy. <laughs> Very bad. He wants it all for himself. He's privatizing it. But but aside from the head of the postal board, you know, it's the Biden administration that controlled the decision about the rail workers. And it is unconscionable that we have people for whom the decision was they couldn't exercise their only real power, which is the right to strike, because it would cripple the economy of the country. That's how essential they are. Like we wouldn't let them do it, unlike the schools, right? I mean, we'll sacrifice the kids, but not capitalist shareholder income right now. And Amazon and everyone's moving on those rail lines, right? So um, the idea that Democrats would both not force something like three weeks of sick time paid, if not more, for people who control like whether or not the economy functions, and then also say that they couldn't strike. We need a lot of illegal strikes and we need them soon. We need solidarity and we're going to have a lot of illegal strikes. And if do you do you have you heard yet, Ian, you must be. Have you read about this Glacier Northwest versus the Teamsters, the Supreme Court case? That's going to be the next big blow to American uh, workers attempts at striking because it's big. We should talk about that. Well, we're, we're running out of time, but I wanted to obviously follow up with the rail strikes, saying that shortly thereafter, yes. this hideous accident happened in yes. Ohio that was hardly an accident, an accident waiting to happen, and it's a result of not having enough workers on the trains and not having the management listen to the workers and take any interest in safety measures. And look, at they have over a 1,000 derailments. So it's all very counterintuitive. So at the end of the day, just in the last minute then, what do you think is the chance of a revival? The, as we started out saying, the press is paying attention to it. What about the rest of the country? Is there, Do you think this is a moment where unions are going to grow and become more effective? I do. Um, I do, you know, but the risk is I do. I th and I think it's strategic choices that, that we make in the trade union movement that determine whether or not we thrive right now or not. That's what the book argues too. Rules to win by um, power and participation, union negotiations, like no shortcuts, like a collective bargain, like my all four of my books now. This one's co-authored, but all the three previous ones. This is an extension of the argument. It takes it into the negotiations realm. We have strategic choices to make as workers inside of our unions or just as workers. And if unions choose to be trustworthy, open, transparent, bring all the workers into the process, help educate them about who's really to blame for the pain in their lives. And your points about safety on the rail lines and the accident waiting to happen is absolutely right. It is time for the rail workers, educators, and everyone in this country um, to be prepared for standing up for themselves, whether it's legal or not, and to rally the public around them uh, and, and write some justice back in this country, really. So, 
you're feeling like we're going to have some fighting unions instead of... I think that workers are going to force it. That's what's happening right now. We need workers to force it, right? Workers are the unions. The book is about creating an argument to democratize unions without creating an, an argument about democracy per se. It's just a way to do it. You know, opening up the negotiations process so that no one can sell anyone out and no leader can make a decision that the workers don't support is a is a is like slamming the doors open is going to lead to a better trade union movement. And I think workers are challenging their employer and building better unions. They're at least trying to. Now, we know that's uneven, even from some stories today in the paper, but there are a lot of young people and reinvigorated and active people disgusted from the pandemic who I think are going to really challenge the employer class and on their way challenge their unions to stand up and be better. Well, Jane McAlevey, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Jane McAlevey, who's an organizer, author, and scholar. She's currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center, part of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations, and is the author of A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. And her latest book just out, co-authored with Abby Lawler, is Rules to Win by Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. And she has a recent article at The Nation, Getting a Contract, Negotiating and Winning Against the Odds. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more life.